This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Very honoured that Lionel um, allowed me to come and talk to you, and I pray, rather than me being a blessing, that the Lord will bless us um, today. It's wonderful that we live in a place where we can open his word. We just had a whole chapter from Galatians, and um, I'm going to raise a number of scriptures today as well. So it's a great opportunity for us to get into the word, and I am very blessed by that. In a world that hates God and hates his word um, and is passionate about that, it's a wonderful refuge for us to meet together as believers and share in the wonders of his word. Can I pray? Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that we can gather here today. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your love, mercy and compassion upon us. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be here, that it would not be me or any of any of us, but that you would be here to teach us, opening our hearts to the wonders, wonders and the glory of your word. In Jesus' name and for your sake, Lord, we pray. Amen. Today I'm speaking, the title of my sermon is The Daughters of Zelophehad. And this is a story, an interesting little story, that comes from the book of Numbers in chapter 27. So if we can open up to Numbers chapter 27, um, verses 1 to 11, that will be good. God of the days where we open a Bible, isn't it? It's to get out your phone. (laughs) So the 27th chapter of Numbers is where we're starting, starting at verse 1. I said to Chris that he was free to read this Bible verse in introduction. I understand why he opted out of it, because it's got lots of awkward names in it. So here we go. Numbers 27, verses 1 to 11. Then the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, came near. And these are the names of his daughters, Malah, Noah, and Hoglah, and Milcah, and Zekah. They stood before Moses and before Eliezer the priest and before the leaders in the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family because he had no son? Give us a a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession amongst their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Further, you shall speak... To the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his nearest relative in his own family, and he shall possess it, and it shall be a statutory ordinance to the sons of Israel, just as the Lord commanded Moses. What an interesting little thing that we have. So let's deal firstly with Zelophehad. His name effectively means firstborn. Okay, he's the firstborn. And that's apt because this is a story of inheritance. So we have Genesis, Brashit, the first book of the five books of Moses. And that deals in the first 11 chapters with the origins of the planet, the the universe and the planet. After chapter 11, we deal with the patriarchs, Abraham and his descendants. Sorry. And then um, that concludes Genesis. We move to Exodus, where we find the sons of Israel in Egypt, under bondage, and God wants to remove them and have an exodus out of bondage into his promised land. We have the book of Leviticus, which deals with the laws of God, how the nation is to run under God's laws. We have the book of Numbers, which is a book that talks about the divisions of the land. They're about to inherit the land. God's giving them his land as an inheritance. How is that going to be divided up amongst the people? That's the book of Numbers. Then we have Deuteronomy. Deutero meaning second. Nomos meaning law. The second time the law is given. 
So that constitutes the first five books of the Bible. And the book of Numbers is about divisions of the land. And chapter 27 deals with the issue of inheriting the land. So we have a situation of a rebellion. I'm sure you know the story of Korah's rebellion in the desert. The land swallowed Korah up and all those that followed him. And they were judged for their rebellion against God's authority given through Moses and God's plan coming against it. But Zelophehad was not one of those. He did not die under a curse and in judgment in the desert with Korah. The Bible says here he died in his own sins. And I can't go into that, but that's a whole other aside. Well, maybe another time we can talk about that. But he didn't die in the rebellion, but he didn't have any sons. So his daughters came up to Moses and says, how is this right? My father is a firstborn. He doesn't have land. He doesn't have an inheritance amongst his brothers. Can we not have it as daughters? Moses is somewhat confounded by that question because inheritance goes through the man. But he doesn't reject them. He says, I need to seek God. He seeks God and God says, the daughters are right. They can inherit their father's portion in the land of Manasseh, one of the half-tribes, descendants of Jacob, of Joseph. So the girls can inherit their father's land and their father's name can be perpetuated. And he says, not only that, make it an ordinance, an ordinance, a statutory ordinance, a law, that of inheritance, that the daughters can inherit if there are no sons. Yep. So we have these five daughters. And we have this story of inheritance. But it's very easy to see how if we we read this with modern eyes, okay, we get a very different perspective on this story. If we take it from the modern world and how we think about things and we interpret meaning from the text from our modern perspective, this is a story that champions women's rights, isn't it? Only men can inherit the land. God will give them land and divide them up. He wasn't involved in a rebellion, but the daughters, his daughters stand up for their rights. They have a right to the land because their father doesn't have it. And these brave women who were usually cowardly and timid because men oppressed them, brazenly and boldly took hold of God's message and proclaimed to Moses for their rights to be delivered to them. Not only that, God said, that's right. The girls can have the land. So women, stand up. Take hold of your rights before the Lord. Demand, because God will be on your side and vindicate you. The laws will be changed And their rights served. That's the modern take. Now, I've exaggerated a little bit, but upon reading that, it's a very interesting thing. And these are the thoughts in our world today. And these are the thoughts that often colour this issue. But when we view scripture through modern eyes, we are destined to make errors. Errors of serious consequence. Yep. And miss what God's actually speaking to us about in passages just like this. This deals with the, inter- with the issue of inheritance. God gives an inheritance. Now, it may surprise you that inheritance is quite a controversial issue. Yep. In 1979, we stopped inherit- uh, we had anti-inheritance laws, particularly in Europe, wanting to break down class structures of those <coughs> pardon me, wealthy people that have family money. You know, they don't need to work because they have, they live upstairs and they have a downstairs and they're lords of the manor. They've inherited family money, which will be passed on. We need to break that down. We need to have workers rise up. And in the Industrial Revolution, these ideas about getting rid of inheritance or taxing inheritance became very popular. In 1979 in Australia, it was stopped. But, and there is no official tax on inheritance. You can inherit it. But as the middle class has gotten wealthier, as our country has gotten wealthier, there are calls to abandon inheritance. Why? Because it's morally wrong. This person gets their parents' money. They didn't do anything for it. 
They didn't earn it. They don't have a right to have it. And not only that, dead people don't have rights, so they don't have a right to say that my money can go to my children. It's, it's immoral. It's building up a class system again of wealthy people that inherit money from their family. And we need to make everyone equal and redistribute that money. And so there's lots of talk about inheritance taxes. It's interesting that God cares about inheritance and inheritance is often under attack in the world. Inheritance is framed really in a wider subject, which I think is the real subject of this issue, and that is the issue of justice. Okay? And it's to the issue of justice that we're really going to look at today, because justice is a fascinating thing and it is central to what the Lord has revealed through his scriptures. Okay? It's not a small issue, it's a large one. So much so that recently lots of evangelical Christians have come together, as recently as September last year, and published a website that is called A Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. John MacArthur has been part of that. Mostly it's reformed um, Christians, but not necessarily. You all have the option to go on the website as believers and put your name to that statement or not. It's declaring the issue of what biblical justice is. Whether it does it well or not is up for you to decide, not me for me to tell you. But it's an issue, a statement of what churches believe, Christians believe about social justice and the gospel is an issue that's happening right now. And the scripture verse that's on the page that they've made is from Colossians 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So what is justice? Now, it seems like it's a simple thing. There are many questions about the world that on the face value you seem to know. Time is one. St. Augustine famously said, when I'm, when I'm by myself sitting under a tree, I know exactly what time is. Time passes by, I know exactly what it is. When someone asks me what is time, I have absolutely no idea how to answer them. Is time a thing? Or is it just what happens when objects move around in our universe? Very difficult to know. What is justice? We seem to have some sense of it in the world today, but what really is it? It's very controversial. Is justice equality? Is creating equality what justice is? Or perhaps it's not that, perhaps it's fairness. Is justice being fair? Well, what about meritocracy? That means getting what you deserve. If you work hard for it, it should therefore be yours. Is that justice? Or is it equity? Getting what we need. You may be wealthy, so you don't need much from the government. This person's poor, so they need a lot more. Is that justice? What is justice? This is controversial, going right back to the ancient world in Greece, Plato. He said that justice is social harmony. Yeah? So if you're a worker ant or you're a soldier ant, or you're the queen bee, whatever you are, your place in society is what you should do, because that creates social harmony. That's what Plato thought justice was. Aristotle thought it was meritocracy. You work hard and you get what you deserve. That's what justice is. Rousseau said it was the social contract of common good. What's good for everyone is what, social just, is what justice is. Karl Marx came along with socialism saying that it's equality to each man's his need. It's needs-based equality. In modern times, philosophers that you may not have heard of, Rawls, John Rawls, very famous philosopher who wrote a book called The Theory of Justice in 1971 that is probably the only book of philosophy that has reached the bestsellers list everywhere. So, so important is John Rawls's book on the theory of justice that Bill Clinton invited him to the White House every second week to, to dine with him when he was president. John Rawls has been very influential. He talks about justice as fairness. 
And then Robert Nozick, another philosopher, came along and said, no, 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 that's not right. Justice is maximising freedom. Liberty is justice. So what is justice? It isn't simple. It sounds simple because we use the word justice, but it's incredibly controversial. So John Rawls says justice is fairness. He has this thought experiment about a veil of ignorance. You need to stand behind a veil of ignorance where you don't know what you are. And then, so you don't know what talents you've got or anything. Design a society that's fair. Okay? Well, if you don't know if you're going to be rich, you could be poor. If you don't know you're going to be talented, you could be completely untalented. So therefore, John Rawls says it's sort of like a socialist redistribution, but not Marxist. John Rawls advocates for providing for the poor as much as possible because behind the veil of ignorance, you don't know what you are. Well, Nozick comes along and says, no, it's about freedom. And he uses the example of a sports player. So you've got someone who's a great basketball player and lots of people want to go and see him, LeBron James or whatever. I'm not really a basketball person, but I've heard that name. Um, He's apparently a good player. Lots of people want to see him. So if they freely want to pay more money to see LeBron James play, they should be free to do that. But that's going to mean that one person has more than other people have. And that's just the result of freedom. And we should maximise freedom. Well, you can't have both. You can't have liberty and fairness all the time. They contradict each other. Because if you're going to make everything equal and fair then you can't have the free choice to pay more for something you want. What is justice? Well, let's first look at what justice is not. And this comes down because so often today, and why Christians, I believe, are very confused about the issues that we face in the world today and torn so many ways. You see Christians supporting same-sex marriage, Because they're told if they don't, they're bigots and they are judging people and they're nasty and they're torn. No one wants to be a bigot and a hater. Yep. Where does justice lie in this? You're told that it's not equal. It's not equality. Therefore, you should support these things. And Christians are often torn because we don't have a sense of what biblical justice is. What does the Bible say about justice? What is justice how it was understood in the times of the biblical authors? Well, justice is not fairness. That's the first thing we've got to see. And the best example of that comes from Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 to 16. So if you have your Bibles open, if you don't, I'll read it and it's easy to understand. So Matthew chapter 20, 1 to 16 says this. Jesus is saying, for the kingdom of heaven is like this, a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire labourers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the labourers for a denarius for the day, he sent them to his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to those, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came... Each one received a denarii. When those, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarii. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, These last men have only worked one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the scorching heat of the day. But he answered to one of them and said, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarii? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is it your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Justice isn't fairness. He agreed. You work a day, I'll give you a denarii. 
And those that only worked one hour, he paid them the same. But he agreed to pay them what they agreed to accept. Why can he not be generous? As he wants to. Because that's not fair. That's unjust. You're right. Because justice isn't fairness. Sometimes justice might be fairness. But it's neither a necessary or sufficient condition for justice. It's just fairness. So let's look at equality. Justice is not equality. It's very controversial to say that today. But it isn't. Matthew 7, 21 to 22 says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform miracles? But they are not his. There isn't equality. No one, no one in this room deserves to be with him for eternity. No, no one deserves to be an attorney. No one here deserves to be with God. He graciously gives you the offer. For those that accept it, they get eternal life. For those that don't, don't. This idea that, oh, it has to be fair, so God has to send everyone to heaven. That's not justice. Equality is not justice. We are not equal. You know, someone who says the world must be just and we must have equality is really saying that I have the right, to, I have the right to be seven foot tall, or I have the right to be called a poached egg, or I have the right to have blue eyes, I have the right to be clever as clever as you. It's just not real, and it isn't justice. It's not equality. Is justice maximising liberty and freedom? First Peter says this in First Peter two fifteen and sixteen. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it to be a bond slave to God. Act as free men, but be slaves to God. Do what He wants you to do. Maximizing liberty to be completely free is not justice either. It's just for man to obey their creator and be in service to him. Act as free men and serve God and be a bond slave to him. Challenging words. Whilst freedom and liberty are good, they are not unqualified goods. You do not use your freedom to cover evil. Freedom is a good thing, but it's not unqualified good. In every sense is it good. Moreover, whilst we're active free, we need to be slaves. Freedom always has its cost. There's no free lunch. Justice is not social. Social justice is the real issue of our times. It's really an expression of distributive justice to say everyone should be equal. There's a sermon by Dr. Vodi Borcham who says this. If the social justice movement went by its actual name, young Christians would not have been lured into it because the social justice movement is actually cultural Marxism. There's no such thing as social justice. People, in fact, in the Bible, justice never has an adjective to describe it. There is justice and there is injustice. There are not different types of justice. So you can't say... The poor, we need justice for the poor. I mean, what is that? 50 years ago, what we consider poor now was wealthy. From country to country, try talking about the poor from one country in Venezuela to the poor over here. What does it mean? Is poor underneath what is an arbitrary selected mark of money? You know, here is the poverty line. It's $25,000. If you're under it, you are poor. Yep. Well, you're not as poor as people in Venezuela eating their pets. What does that mean? Do we look at the issues of justice for social groups? Or is there justice and injustice? There's right and there's not right. We see this sort of thing all the time. Social justice is a big thing of our age. Economic justice. 
We've got to have the same money and redistribute so everyone has the same. Environmental justice. It's unjust for future generations, even if they haven't been born. If we abuse the planet's resource, that's unfair for them. We've ruined their planet. That's unjust. We need environmental justice. Social justice, racial justice, justice for those with different sexual orientations or identities. Reproductive justice, the most outrageous thing that goes under the rubric of justice. Sorry, (laughs) I'm causing problems by moving too much. The most outrageous thing that goes under the rubric of justice today is reproductive justice. Because that says this, a man can have an affair with a woman and walk away with no responsibility. She, however, when she has the affair, is burdened with the pregnancy. The man's not burdened with that responsibility. The woman is. So she should have the right to kill that baby in her womb so justice can be served. Because justice is equality. So now it's just to murder your child. That's an issue of justice. It's outrageous. But do you see? Because of their sin of not having a sexual union within a commitment before God... Yep, I should be able to sleep with whoever I want. And the man can bear illegitimate children and not be responsible for them. And the poor women are stuck with them. So they should be able to kill them. We're justifying sin and we're now calling what is evil good. Social justice is defined by the United Nations in a document from New York, United Nations in New York in 2006. It's called Social Justice in an Open World. It says this, Arguments founded on moral fairness are easily disposed of in an atmosphere of moral relativism and cultural pluralism. Present day believers in an absolute truth identified with virtue and justice are neither willing nor desirable companions for the defenders of social justice. Those like you and me that believe that there is good and there is evil are not wanted or capable to support the current movements of social justice. Be aware of this thing. Christians have been bemused by this and have been utterly incapable of engaging with the world because they haven't understood what they know justice to be from the Bible or understood what the world's done. There is one type of justice in the Bible, but there are two expressions of it. Okay? One type, two modes or expressions. What we call retributive justice or restorative justice. Retributive justice is this idea that we punish those who do wrong. That for doing wrong, there is a punishment that is deserved. Yes? Restorative justice is the idea of if someone has wronged you, the situation should be restored. So if a child, somebody else's child throws a brick through your window that does wrong, they maybe should be punished, their parents should ground them or they should, you know, have some consequence for it. But also reparations should be made and a window should be repurchased by that family or that child. Yes? Modern civil and criminal justice try to make this either one or another, and they actually want to remove retributive justice, punishment upon our prisoners, and have restorative justice. We need to restore them back to society. Prison is now no longer separating the dangerous elements of society out for the good of the people. It's, oh, we have to rehabilitate them so they can go back into society. The focus is on the prisoners, not on the people. And people are upset about that. But these two are linked together in the Bible. In Exodus 23, you shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert, be led astray from justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall return it to him. Do you see that? You're not to be partial to the poor man because of his poverty. 
If you're in a dispute with someone and you see his ox or donkey walking down the street, even though he's your enemy and you're in a dispute, you need to return it back to him. Because justice is justice. It's about doing right. And the Hebrew words bear this out. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. You shall not pervert justice, mishpat in Hebrew, due to your needy brother in his dispute. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe binds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just, sadiq, mishpat, justice, sadiq, righteousness. Justice and righteousness all the time go together in the Bible. Those words happen all the time together. Because one is a synonym of the other. What is just is what is right. Justice is about righteousness. Does that make sense? Let me show you how they're commonly linked together. Psalm 33 verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Psalm 89 verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Psalm 89 Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 97, how blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Righteousness and justice go together. If you can't produce righteousness, you can't be just. Where righteousness doesn't happen, justice can't happen. Does that make sense? The fundamental meaning of justice in both Old and New Testament is giving to someone their due. That's what justice is. It's not fairness, it's not equality, it's not all the stuff that we're told about today with justice. It is about giving someone their due. It is unjust not to punish someone who's guilty. That is a wrong, unjust thing. It's also unjust to punish someone too much for the crime that they've done. If their crime demands this level of punishment and you exceed it, that would be unjust because justice is giving someone what they are due. You may help the poor and that's a good thing, but you don't do it to address an injustice. You do it because you are just. Yeah? A righteous person will have compassion on those that God puts in front of him or her. And a just person will help those that are in need. But that's not correcting an injustice in the Bible. That's simply the exercise of compassion and mercy. Yeah? Being compassionate, being merciful. But it is not correcting an injustice. It is not unjust that there are poor people and wealthy people. It is not unjust that there are talented people and less talented people. There is not unjust that there are good-looking people and me. These things are just how the world is. They're not an injustice. But if you are a just person and you have compassion and mercy, it is a just person will be compassionate and merciful. But don't combine the two things together. Did you see the error that we're talking about? In the Oxford Dictionary, it defines a just person as one who typically does what is morally right and is disposed to giving everyone his or her due. That is traditionally what justice is. Our modern world has twisted the meaning completely. Just like it has wrenched love and redefined it away from its true meaning, it has wrenched justice. And all the great words of scriptures have been reinterpreted. Faith has been poo-pooed for what it isn't. Yep. Justice has been mangled in the eyes of the world to, al- to allow the despicable things I mentioned before. Biblical justice is retributive justice. It's about punishment, about punishment for wrong. That is the justice that is in the scriptures all the time. Everywhere you look, the language of the courtroom pervades scripture when it talks about justice. The Bible starts and ends with punishment. 
In Genesis 3, we have the fall of man and the punishment upon mankind. In Revelation 22, verse 12, it says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. It begins and ends with retributive justice. It always places it in a courtroom setting. And you can see this by the very famous verses that are used by some Christians that champion social justice. Micah 6 verse 8 is a, a verse that is often used to champion the types of things I've talking about, that I've been speaking about. Have a listen to Micah 6 8, you'll recognise it. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Yeah? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. And you extend your arms and doves land on them because you're just simply wonderful. A modern day Francis of Assisi. Is that what it means? Well, how do we interpret scripture? The first thing we do is we place it in context. Let's look at Micah 6 verse 1 and 2. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will dispute. It's the language of the courtroom, isn't it? He has a case against his people. He has a dispute with his people. Plead your case to the mountains. The whole language of justice in Micah is retributive. So you can't just ignore verse 1 and 2, jump to verse 8 and say, do justice, love righteousness, and oh, love, walk humbly before your God and love righteousness. You've got to put things in context. That's not at all what it's saying. What about in the Jewish religion? Do they have anything to add to this? They do. There's an ancient prayer called the Aleinu. It dates back to the 3rd century under Rabbi Akiva, the Rav. But tradition tells us that this prayer was the one that Joshua prayed when he walked into the promised land and took over the promised land. This is traditionally where the prayer comes from. And it has a verse in there called the Tikkun Olam, a section, and this is it. Therefore we put our hope in you, Adonai our God, to soon see the glory of your strength, to remove the idols from the earth and to completely cut off all false gods, to repair the world, Tikkun Olam, to repair the world, your holy empire and for all living flesh. goes on, to call your name, the earth will turn to you. The inhabitants will recognise you and every knee and tongue will bow. What is justice? What is the Jewish tikkun olam? It happens when the Messiah comes back. The Messiah comes back and makes society just and right with his punishment. We don't do it. He repairs the world, not us. In Judaism, it's done by the Messiah at the coming, at his coming at the end of the age. The confusion lies because we conflate justice and mercy. James, it says in James 2 verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole of the law and yet stumbles at one point has become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. This is the stuff that was spoken about today, the issue of the law in Galatians 3. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is better than judgment. If true justice happens, I will be judged and ruthlessly and righteously so. Hallelujah that God's merciful to me. And I will want to extend mercy to other people, not justice. Because if I extend justice, then I'm going to condemn everyone that I meet. Mercy is much better than justice, than judgment. 
Which is why God wants us, who's been forgiven much, to be merciful to those around us. So inheritance again. What does it really mean, going back to the story of Zelophehad, of inheritance? To be specific, in Ephesians 3, 6 and 7, it says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers in the promise in Christ through Jesus through the through Christ Jesus through the gospel. I'll say that again. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs. There's an inheritance because the Gentiles are heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Us Gentiles do not inherit the kingdom. The inheritance was for the Jews, not for you and me. The inheritance was for the boys, the firstborn, not for the five daughters. They weren't entitled to it. They had to approach Moses. You and I are not entitled to the inheritance we have in the same way the girls aren't. But through Christ Jesus we can inherit the promises of Abraham. And through God's mercy, those girls were able to inherit the land given to their fathers. That is the good news. But that isn't the end of the story. Because the modern way of understanding this is absolutely put to death if you read the whole of the story. Because in Numbers, the story of the five daughters of Zelophehad is not yet done. We need to turn to the very last chapter of Numbers, chapter 36, to find out that there's a little bit at the end. Because you've got to read the whole story if you're going to make the right judgment. So Numbers 36, 1 to 13, the five daughters of Zelophehad return. And this is what happens. And the head and the heads of the father's household of the family of the son of Gilead and the son of Machir and the son of Manasseh of the families of the son of Joseph came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders, the heads of the father's households of the sons of Israel. It's a very long way to say that these girls' uncles, brothers and family members came before Moses because they had an issue. We're going to find out what the issue is now in verse 2. And they said... The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land by lot to the sons of Israel as an inheritance. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. But if they marry one of the sons of the other tribes of the sons of Israel, their inheritance will be withdrawn from the inheritance of our fathers and will be added to the inheritance of the tribe to which they belong. Thus it will be withdrawn from our allotted inheritance. When the Jubilee of the sons of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe to which they belong, so their inheritance will be withdrawn from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. Here's the issue. We'll go on in a minute. minute. The problem is this. They said, well, it's great, Moses, that God decided to give the inheritance to the daughters of Zelophehad, but we've got a big problem. Their inheritance belongs to the house of Manasseh. They're now of marrying age. And if they marry someone from another tribe, a bloke from another tribe, our land's going to become their land. And then at the Jubilee, when the Jubilee happens and things are readjusted, we've permanently lost our land because it's going to go to whoever they married and whatever tribe they have. So the loss of the land will be permanent. It's great that you gave it to the girls, but now we've got a problem. We've lost our inheritance. What, what do we do about this? Then Moses, in verse 5, commanded the sons of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, the tribe of the sons of Joseph are right in their statements. This is what the Lord has commanded concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, let them marry whom they wish, only they must marry within the family of the tribe of their father. Thus no inheritance of the sons of Israel shall be transferred from tribe to tribe. For the sons of Israel shall each hold to the inheritance of the tribes of his father. 
Every daughter who comes into possession of an inheritance of any tribe of the sons of Israel shall be the wife of one of the family of the tribe of her father, so that the sons of Israel may each possess the inheritance of his fathers. Thus no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another tribe, for the tribes of my sons of Israel shall each hold to his own inheritance. Verse 10. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so the daughters of Zelophehad did. Malah, Zazar, Hoglah, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, married their uncle's sons. They married those from the families of the sons of Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, and their inheritance remained within the tribe of the family of their father. These are the commandments and the ordinances which the Lord commanded the sons of Israel through Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. So it was great that they could inherit the land, but it comes at a cost. You can inherit the land of your fathers, but you can marry whoever you want from within your own family. Your uncle's sons, you can marry so that your inheritance stays in the family. You can't have your cake and eat it too. If you want to inherit the land, great, the land goes to you. But there's a cost. There's always a cost. There's no such thing as a free lunch. That's the same with us. You and I, this is the story of it all. You and I have been made heirs. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. We inherit the promises of God. And we've done that through the wonderful sacrifice that our Messiah had on the cross. To enable us to be his children. He set us free from sin. And said, act freely. But be a slave to me. No free lunch. There's a payoff. You want to be free from sin? Great. Hallelujah. You want to attain eternal life? Great. Hallelujah. Follow the Lord and do what he says. You don't get your cake and eat it too. Nobody does. These wonderful daughters didn't because they could marry who they like from this very restricted pool. That's the consequence of your choice. Does that make sense? And that's the beauty of real freedom. You are now free to follow Christ. You have been made free to follow him. There's always that payoff. In Romans it says this. In Romans 12 verse 1. Therefore I urge you brethren by the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and blameless in his sight, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We've lost the plot, haven't we? Because we think this is worship. We think, some people think doing a soup van is worship. We even think that reading the Bible is worship. But what does the Bible say is worship? Present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and blameless in his sight. This is your act of spiritual worship. You want to worship God, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him. That's the only acceptable worship. You can sing, you can dance, you can raise your hands, lie, you can praise God with your mouth to your blue in the face. And again, I'm not saying that's not wonderful, but it's not an unrestricted wonderfulness. Yeah? Never let your praises of God that's sung be better than your life before him. That's the message. There's always a payoff because we don't understand freedom and we don't understand justice. When true justice occurs, it is the ability for us to be free to follow him. And that's what the sisters, daughters of Zelophehad are teaching us today. That true justice is getting what you deserve. That true justice is in the court. And you and I in that court are guilty. And you will always be guilty. And nothing will ever change your guilt for the things that you do in your life. But one came to pay the cost of your guilt. And to remove the punishment you deserve. And take it upon himself. So the punishment is made vicariously by Christ in your place. You'll always have done wrong, but God will remember it no more. 
and God will not hold it against you. And his anger will be satiated by the love that he has for his son. Yeah? So don't sin anymore. (laughs) Do you see what I mean? How good is it to be free from the consequences of sin? Now go and be good. There's always that payoff. And therein lies true justice. And I say these things because I have a heart for the world that we have today and a heart for those believers in it that are so muddled by the doublespeak that we have in our society that we need to get these things straight. And we get these things straight by reading scripture. And we get these things straight by praying the Holy Spirit will interpret those things to us so we can be right before him. So I'd like to close in prayer if that's all right. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are just in all your ways. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are justice. And the single most important theme in the scriptures is that you are a just God. And the punishment that we deserve has been taken by your son. And Lord, convict our hearts, empower our wills to want to follow you more closely every day. It says in the psalm that holiness is beauty, that we look upon the beauty of your holiness. Lord, if holiness is moral perfection, we have a world that despises that. Help us look to your moral perfection and recognise it as truly beautiful. So beautiful, Lord, that we will eagerly desire it in our lives to serve you and to walk with justice and righteousness and loving kindness and humility on this planet all the days of our lives. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much for the opportunity to come and speak to you. It's been a great blessing for me. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.